0: What's up, gumbo listeners? Demetrius here, dropping episode number one hundred and two for you today, and I have Dan Draper, the CEO and founder of Cipherstash on, and Cipherstash is a secure, searchable, encrypted data store that's fast and based on industry standard cryptography and that developers love to use. So Dan is also an experienced engineer and business leader in his technical specialization in cryptography engineering. And his mission is to make cryptography and security accessible to all engineers. So Gumbo listeners, Dan provides detailed information on the different types of encryption, best practices on encryption key management, and how you can secure your searchable data. So let's get right into this episode welcome to data protection gumbo dan how are you today
1: i'm great thank you it's great to be here
0: all right it's definitely a pleasure to have you on and to also hear a little bit about cypher stash and some of the technologies that you're working with and and also why it is important to address these particular issues uh, especially with the type of technology that you have
1: indeed so i think Every organization on the planet just about has a data database of some kind, right? Every, every, right? every organization needs to store data. And increasingly, that data that they store, at least a significant percentage of that data, is what we might call sensitive data. So personally identifying information, it might be healthcare information, financial information, and so forth. And for as long as I can remember... The kinds of databases that we use to store these databases haven't really changed uh, to store this data. Haven't really changed, you know. Relational databases, perhaps more recently, um, what you might call NoSQL databases or NoSQL databases, but essentially they're all they all work in the same way. And at CypherStash, we think of databases like this as as a as a chocolate, as a chocolate with a hard shell but a soft, mm-hmm. gooey centre.
0: The M M&M and so M analogy.
1: Right? The external, the, the, that that hard chocolate exterior is our firewalls, it's our intrusion protection systems, it's our two-factor authentication. But the data inside that chocolate is still, at, for the most part, not protected. It's, you know, we, we put all these protections on the outside, but we can't really protect the data on the inside. And there have been uh, some attempts at solving this problem, but essentially what that means is that when a developer or an architect designs a system, they have to make a trade-off. They have to decide whether they want to fully protect the data, which we'll talk about in a moment, or keep that data useful. So if you think, I, I often use the example of a, uh, a healthcare system. So let's say, let's say in a healthcare setting, you want to look up a patient by their social security number, or in mm-hmm. Australia where I'm from, their Medicare number. Uh, if you are unable to search that data, uh, uh, an approach we're very used to in, 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 you know, in storing our data, if you're not able to search that data, then the data is essentially useless. It becomes incredibly difficult to use. And so the way that some organizations in the past have tackled this is they encrypt the data in that, in that chocolate. So the, now the chocolate is solid all the way through. Think of it like a mm-hmm. gobstopper. Uh, okay. But they can't search their data anymore. So there's this fundamental choice that becomes a real, a real um, paradox for so many organisations that care deeply about the data of their security, but also, sorry, the security of their data, but also uh, the utility of it. How do how do we make products that people actually find useful? And so at Safe stash we've been working on a, a technology or, or using some of the state of the art technology called searchable encryption. Okay. So what this allows us to do is. Have that gobstopper kind of data storage me- uh, model where where the data is encrypted all the way through, but still allow organizations or users of the system to to perform searches. So we can look up that social security number uh, with an encrypted search. The search itself is encrypted. The data is encrypted all the time, and it fundamentally changes the way we think about the security of that data.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I'm I'm trying to understand that. Why does the search have to be encrypted? It, it sounds like an easy answer to it, but there are many examples of, you know, ransomware and different attacks and, and, and hacks and things are happening all the time. So this is a public search, right? So, or is this a, an internal search that they're running or an external search or like explain to me, I guess, like what, what is needed or what was the idea behind encrypting the search technology or the search?
1: Yeah, so this essentially comes down to your trust model, I suppose. How you think okay. about who has access to your data and who you trust. Um, hmm. So the, the, the typical kind of model that we think about is where a database is hosted in a cloud provider. Uh, that that okay. database is effectively not entirely under our control. Um, you know, we have access to the, you know, we can connect to it and we have the permissions to it, but, but the the database, I don't even know where the database is hosted, for example, it's Mm -hmm, in a data center mm -hmm. somewhere. Um, and what I want to do is connect to that database, say from my browser or my mobile device, or from some web application, enterprise web application. Okay. And all of the information, all of the traffic to and from that database is encrypted. So if, if an eavesdropper was, uh, had compromised that database, for example, or if somebody had accessed it that perhaps just wasn't supposed to, maybe an internal internal actor, yeah, then they would learn nothing about the data. That's the kind of uh, kind of threat that we're we're protecting okay. ourselves from. So it dramatically reduces the surface. Yeah.
0: So uh, yeah, it's it it sounds like your technology is uh, definitely a part of the solution instead of being a part of the problem. But uh, what I also want to ask you is why why aren't people Really using like encrypted databases right now. I don't hear a lot about individuals using encrypted databases. I hear about people using databases, but not necessarily encrypted ones.
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I wondered the same thing, to be honest, and and that's what sent me down mm. a, a path of discovery about three years ago, and I ended up um, studying a great deal on on this topic. So there's a there's a couple of reasons. One, the the encryption technology just hasn't been around, for, for one. Uh, you know, there are, there are a couple of schemes that, that people use. At one end of the spectrum, you've got what you might call a deterministic encryption scheme. So for, for any of your listeners who who understand this stuff at some level, mm-hmm. it's basically a hashing scheme. Yeah, okay. Uh, and that works pretty well. It uh, It's fast. Uh, an example of a technology that uses this is... Um, uh, Microsoft's always encrypted products that they have inside their SQL server database. Uh, the problem with these kinds of technologies is that they are actually not particularly secure. Uh, they're fast, um, and they seem like they're giving you some sort of protection, but they're not very secure. And in fact, there's was a, um, there been a couple of papers on this topic. One uh, was from a, a, a group of researchers from 2015, uh, uh, Naveed and some of his colleagues, uh, who showed that, these kinds of schemes are very vulnerable to what they call inference attacks. Okay. So, that's you can, once you understand the, 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 the statistical spread of the data, if you know that this information is going to be people's names, for example, mm-hmm. and it's all encrypted, they showed that you could actually reveal a lot of this information. Uh, actually, up to, up to 80% of the data that they had in their test suite that was encrypted, they were able to essentially decrypt.
0: Wow. W- w- without the having a key? Without having the key. Wow. Yeah. Okay.
1: So this is because the, you know, the, the kind of encryption that we have become very dependent on in our, in our modern internet connected society has some security properties that these deterministic encryption schemes simply don't have. Mm-hmm. So we, we use right. you know, advanced encryption standard AES. It's, it's what powers the world. It powers the internet. Our, our, nearly every kind of encryption that we use is based on AES in some way uh these older schemes, these older deterministic encryption schemes don't use that. And so they don't benefit from some of the same properties that that AES has. Um, so many, many security experts have simply abandoned that kind of technology. There, there are still there are still some floating around, but for the most part they're not considered secure. And so I think a lot of a lot of uh, vendors have simply simply walked away from those kinds of technologies. At the other end of the scale you have things like uh homomorphic encryption which which once again some of your listeners may have heard of and there is a
0: yeah i don't think i have
1: homomorphic encryption is quite interesting it's it's um this idea of a complete zero trust model so imagine imagine i i give you a a a locked box demetrius and i have the key you have the box but you don't you don't know what's in it you don't have the key but I'm giving you that locked box as, as the custodian of my data. Uh, and actually, through homomorphic encryption, you could take, say, two of those boxes and add them together and give me a third box, which is the sum of those two values, but you still don't know what the original values were or the new value is. And then you can give me back the box. Okay. So that's extremely useful in, uh, you can imagine, things like machine learning or doing analysis on very large data sets. Healthcare data sets is an interesting one. Uh, so, homomorphic encryption is very promising, but the biggest challenge, there's two main challenges, but the biggest one probably is that it's just super, super slow. It's like five orders of magnitude slower than, uh, you know, than doing just operations on plain text. And so if you were to, to give, put that in perspective, if you were, if you were to sum, uh, add up, say, a thousand integers, depending on a variety of factors, but that could take you minutes or even hours in some cases. And that's so that's just not usable. You can't do real time search with homomorphic encryption. So
0: is there a certain industry where someone would like who's using that homomorphic encryption? Like, is that a certain industry that uses it more than one or different types of companies that, that use it since it's so slow?
1: yeah so it's it's not used very much in industry yet. okay uh, I know a lot of there are a lot of organizations that are that are actively researching it, and i and I, I think many folks are hoping that this the performance improvement will come. There are some small cases where you know if you've got lots of money to to spend on compute lots and lots of hardware and you're happy to wait a few mm-hmm. days, you know things like healthcare information, uh, those kinds of things. You know there certainly are applications for for homomorphic encryption or, or FHE as we, we sometimes call it. Okay, but it, the, what we're missing really is this sweet spot in the middle. Like how do we how do we encrypt our database that gives us better security properties than uh, this this old deterministic encryption scheme I mentioned earlier, but is is practical? It's fast enough for us to do real time queries. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what we're interested
0: in. And so in. I, I guess you chose the database because it's, 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 just, it's just one of those, you know, very important systems, the heart of, of an organization, which is keeping track of, you know, all of those things in a nice organized row and a column. And then you have the, the um, NoSQL databases and, you know, those open source type of databases as well, which do things a little bit differently than your yeah. traditional like Oracle or or SQL itself, or even IBM DB2, which I still don't hear a lot about. But I used to love DB2 because I was an IBMer uh, straight out of college. Um, but the question I, I want to ask you is is still around, like the encrypted databases, and you know how how is what you're building at at Stash different from some of the previously Built encrypted databases that are out there.
1: Yeah, so there's probably two main reasons. The first is is the the scheme that we're using. So we we use a, a technology called order revealing encryption. So if I if I mentioned a moment ago, uh, you know, these other two schemes, determinist encryption and and fully homomorphic encryption, you can think of order revealing encryption uh, as kind of a a partial homomorphic encryption scheme. So it gives you some of the some of the the benefits of fully homomorphic, but you get all the performance benefits that you do with a traditional database. So it's actually practical. Uh, The second reason is that many traditional databases, you mentioned a few uh, a moment ago, so Oracle and and Microsoft and, and many of the open source databases, MySQL and so forth, they're all based on, I guess, a historical legacy that didn't necessarily always think about security first. So there are a lot of problems with these kinds of databases. And so what we've, you know, things like storing storing logs, keeping caches in memory, um, all these other little uh, little things that you don't tend to think about uh, when you're designing a database for performance or usability, but that become a problem when you think about it from a security perspective. These many of these these uh, attributes give give uh, potential um, attackers little little hooks that they can they can dig into that might give them access to the data. And so SafeStash is uh, not only based on this order revealing encryption scheme, but we've, in many respects, built this thing from the ground up with security in mind from the beginning. Um, we've utilized a, a, a low level data store, an open source data store called LMDB, which is Lightning Memory Database, um, but used that as sort of the, the basis for building something that has security in its mind, from the get-go. Uh, so we we are building what, we, what we've what referred to as the world's first snapshot secure database. Mm, okay. So what that means, a snapshot secure database, snapshot security is essentially when an attacker can get a, a, a complete running copy of your database. So that's everything in logs, everything on the file system, on the disk, running in memory, what have you. So our goal is to literally take a snapshot of, our, of, a, of a database running in Sifestash, stick it up in a... And a website somewhere and say please come and try and download our database and and reveal the information and we we believe we have a data system that that can withstand that kind of attack
0: so you're taunting them <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i mean perhaps in some sense i mean i say this i say this with with tongue in cheek a little Uh, we're not suggesting that you should just abandon all of your other security practices. Mm -hmm. I think it's, we we believe in this idea of defense in depth. You should always have things like firewalls and and least privileged security and, and what have you. But this is the, we see it as the last vestige of the data security stack. Okay, If the database itself is compromised, Sifestash will give you very high levels of protection. And and actually, you you talked about ransomware a moment ago. Yeah. Uh, let let's come back to ransomware sure. for a second, because you think about what what a, what a, an attacker is trying to do when when they are performing a ransomware attack on a on an unsuspecting victim. It's it's usually about extortion, right? And so there are two there are two possible ways that they might extort a victim. There are probably others, but there are two main ways that, that I think about. The first is bringing your business to a halt, preventing you from, from being able to operate as a business. Now, that's, that's a hard problem to solve generally because there are lots of different ways that, that attackers can do that. But the second way I find really really quite interesting, the second way that they might extort you is when they threaten to leak information, leak sensitive information. Hmm. The famous right. one that I, I think about is the Ashley Madison attack from a few years ago. Hmm. where where attackers leak leak very sensitive data uh as a as a means to extort their victim now let's imagine if if they had access to the data but all of that data is encrypted it's it's what we think about as snapshot secure okay mr attacker fine leak the data you won't be able to see anything anyway uh now that that changes the way we think about ransomware attacks it removes an entire class of ransomware attack from our threat model Mm -hmm. uh i mean it's probably something we should still think about but it 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 reduces the impact and reduces the likelihood of that being uh a a practical attack so this is something okay from the ransomware perspective we're very interested in this as well
0: have you had any use cases um specifically around customers who were hit by ransomware and they were using Cypher stash and kind of brag and say, hey, you know, you can't get my data. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> So we haven't had any of our customers attacked by ransomware yet, thankfully. I mean, that's probably a good thing. Um, but we yeah. certainly have a lot, of, a lot of customers that we're working with now who who are very concerned about ransomware. Uh, they're very concerned about uh, a whole range of attacks that they believe Cypher Stash can protect them from security is a, it's a, it's a funny thing. It's um, you don't think about it very much. Or a lot of people don't think about it very much until, until you are attacked. And thankfully, at, at least to the best of our knowledge, none of, none of the customers we're working with now have been attacked. Uh, but you know, there, there might be a time, I'm sure there will be a time in the future where, where I can say that okay. on heart that Sifestash has helped them.
0: Absolutely. And also here on the Gumbo it is, you know, very important to make sure we we give some best practices um, and, and one that I want to tap you on right now is key management. Mm. Do, do you have like, you know, how they should do it, how often they should rotate the keys or, you know, whatever is important just from a key management perspective?
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, key rotation is a, is a is a really big one. Um, <clears throat> you need to think about generally. Generally speaking, when we're when we're doing key management, we're talking about uh, the keys we use to do AES encryption, and so AES encryption uh, essentially has a limit of, you know, let's let's say roughly uh, a few hundred million. Encryptions before you need to rotate your keys. So depending on the kind of data that you're uh, encrypting, you, you need to you need to rotate it every few hundred million encryptions. Um, so if it's in a in a file system or a data store or or what have you, um, so rotation is important. The other thing to think about when we're rotating is um, why are we rotating? Are we doing a are we doing a routine? key encryption, a key rotation, because, you know, we've encrypted a lot of data and we think, well, okay, maybe now it's probably a good time to to rotate the key, or are we doing an emergency rotation? Emergency rotations are not something we often think about, but if a key has been leaked, if somebody that we don't want to have access to one of our keys suddenly has access to our key, we need to rotate that key quickly. But if you've got a lot of data that's been encrypted with that key, that could take some time. So I encourage organizations to think about what are they going to do if a key is leaked? What are they going to do? Uh, Are they going to literally shut down services before they, they are able to fully rotate the data? Or is that a risk that they're prepared to take? And I can't answer that question for them, but it's something that I think everybody needs to think about, especially when we're encrypting sensitive data. I really rely heavily on systems like Amazon key management service uh, or in some cases I use, um, hardware security modules. So these are, these are systems that allow me to make requests to the server, uh, to to this service. So so key, key management service, for example, to do an encryption for me, um, without me needing to know the underlying key. So services like this are really valuable as well. So that there are really good systems out there for key management, but key management is certainly something that organizations need to think very carefully about. What happens if a key is leaked? How do we respond? Who has access to the key? Think about that kind of least privileged model. Yep, okay. Um, uh, and then what services can we utilize that are, that are taking on some of that best practices burden for us? So hardware security modules, for example.
0: All right, and so, so you mentioned um, different types of leaks. Like, can you maybe provide a couple ways that you know data in, ends up getting leaked?
1: Certainly, yeah. So there's there's a number of ways that data can get leaked in a in a in a modern organization. Um, we've talked about one already, which is ransomware. There's also accidents, uh, an accidental data leak. You know, you you think about a. Uh, an infrastructure team, a DevOps team, or even a, a software development team that has access to the database, they need to have access to the database to do backups, restores, maybe they need to manage the cluster or whatever, you know, the, the, the daily operations. Uh, in order to do those things, invariably, the, that team or members of that team will have access to the underlying data. Now, what happens if uh, a database backup or a snapshot gets, gets accidentally uploaded to an S3 bucket and that, that S3 bucket doesn't have the right permissions or it gets downloaded onto somebody's laptop because they are doing some, some tests with, with data sets or they want to they wanna try out a new, I don't know, uh, database replication scheme or something like that, and then they, then they leave their database, their laptop on the train. You know, accidental data leak it's it's quite terrifying I, I find uh, you know how how easy it is for for data to leak that way and so one of the things we think about is if if the data data is encrypted all the time even the custodians of the database don't necessarily see the underlying data they just have these kind of opaque blobs of data that they're sh- they're shuffling around and, and using to manage the system but they still can't see the information so accidental data leak is one of course, you have to think about malicious internal actors as well. Um, we, all, we all trust the teams we work with. We all hope that that never happens, but sadly enough, it does. So that's another, another thing to think about. Who has access to the system? What can they see? Do we trust them? Um, and then the third uh, and, and final um, sort of area I think about is compromised by an external adversary. And so ransomware is, is one example of that, but it could also be this idea of a snapshot attack where, where an adversary has managed to get access to our system and they can take a copy of the entire running system. So maybe they've accessed a Docker container or they've accessed a, a running virtual machine somehow or a, or a file system snapshot. Uh, there's various different ways that they might access that. An external attacker might also uh, compromise our supply chain. And so we saw this with solar winds recently, which is, which is, uh, I think, uh, you know, supply chains attack attacks have been around for, for quite some time, but I think people's awareness of them have, cer- has certainly increased, uh, since solar winds and, and the number of attacks that are, uh, that are occurring are, are on the rise. Uh, so I think there's, there's, there's variety of different, uh, mechanisms that, that an adversary might, might, a yeah. system. Yeah.
0: So it, it seems like it's, it's, a ton of ways that that you can you can be compromised nowadays because you know 20 30 years ago I guess we didn't have as many <laughs> yes. opportunities or as many solutions or technologies like you know everything is is cloudy now you know SaaS software as a service and you have buckets everywhere and blobs and you know just lots of different places to to store your data to replicate your data to um, you know, send it to another region or another zone and it's it's, it's beginning to become complicated and I like to say I, I actually chose the right field, which is you know backup and recovery and storage and I, I didn't imagine that data would actually be that number one key to really you know maintaining the the growth of the future uh, just from an, from an analytic, analytics perspective if you're mining that data and you're you know getting analytics on it, et cetera. Um so it there are many different places and different ways that that a customer can be attacked. Um what, what are some of the other things that that people should be doing to secure their data? Um and, and even if they're not a a cipher stash customer, but you know what what advice do you have there? Uh there's a lot
1: of things they can do. I mean, I I I I could I could talk about this for hours, Demetrius, so I I I'll try to give you some some summarized points.
0: Mm-hmm. i mean
1: the first one is really around access control uh depending on on kind of the nature of your business and and the kinds of data that you manage access control might uh might be a little different for you but i think it's something that every organization needs to think about for one uh wherever possible use multi-factor authentication for all of your your um your employees or your even your customers uh things like single sign-on is really important because If you have a, say somebody leaving the organization and they've just got one place where their credentials are managed, you can, you can remove them from all access very quickly. Things like least privilege where you're only giving anyone who needs to access a system, literally the minimum access that they need to do that function. And that also applies to systems, not just people, uh, systems should have access to only the things they need. For example, uh, maybe some systems don't need access to the internet, or if they do, they only need access to, you know, port 443, where you access secure, secure traffic, for example. Um, I think monitoring and logging is incredibly important. Uh, you know, intrusion p- protection systems, um, uh, things like audit logging. Uh, then you've got things like firewalls, web application firewalls, and, and denial of service uh, protection, and, you know, all, all of the major cloud providers offer these kinds of services. One that often gets missed is uh, training, training for your team. Uh, And, you know, I I would say this is true all the way from software engineers right down to the sales team. Um, It it sort of surprises me how many software engineers and technology professionals don't understand some of the cryptography basics, for example. So why, why do we use keys in a certain way or what kinds of primitives would we consider to be secure and which ones would we not? Um, maybe that doesn't apply to all of your audience, but I think developing a little bit of an understanding of, of these technologies is really, really valuable on, on the other end of the spectrum, just helping all of your users understand what kinds of threats should they be conscious of ransomware, phishing attacks, um, making sure they don't share their password. If they've got a a mobile device that it's always encrypted, keeping their laptop encrypted, for example, on, on Macintosh, it's, uh, I think they call it Fire vault, file vault. You can you can turn on encryption. So if you lose a device, uh, then there's a very high chance that that an attacker that gets that device won't be able to get any information from it. Uh, so there's a whole range of different things that you might want to consider. But training, training, I think is one that's okay. often overlooked.
0: Definitely. And and Dan, you you've provided a ton of information, and you know it's 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 fantastic that we can we can sit around and talk security, and you know. I don't think you mentioned zero trust, though. That, that was one that I, I didn't hear a lot about zero trust. I heard MFA and SSO and access management. And you, you mentioned most of them. You mentioned most so, of them.
1: Zero trust is an interesting one. Zero trust has certainly, uh, I think there's been a lot of discussion about zero trust in the industry recently. Um, so this idea of zero trust, I think is, maybe I didn't use the term, but uh, homomorphic encryption is, is an example of a zero trust system. Uh, and actually, you could argue Sifestash is also an example of, a, of a, a zero trust system. So what do I mean by a zero trust system? I mean, I can give you, I can give a third party, a party that I, I don't trust. I have zero trust for uh, some mechanism to manage my data, uh, but they cannot see any of the data they don't know what the data is they just know that they that they just know they have some of my data it's like a black box uh, and so the zero trust problem is is actually a it's, it's still an actively researched problem uh in 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 academic circles in cryptography circles when i say crypto i'm talking about cryptography not bitcoin <laughs> um but uh the the challenge of course with zero trust in a, in an enterprise system is that it's a little bit of a fallacy. There isn't there isn't any such thing as a as a as a pure zero trust system. You can think of it though as a, a somewhat of a distributed trust system. So, how much do you trust each uh, each member of your system? So, if you've got an enterprise system, you've probably got um, employees using laptops or mobile devices. You've got. Uh, Maybe an on-prem application, in some cases, certainly in larger organizations, you've got some server running in a, running in a, a cabinet in, or a room in your, uh, within your uh, premises. You've probably got a cloud provider, and maybe you've got several different cloud providers doing different things. Uh, each of those parties in that system need to, do, need, need to play a role. And, and how much do you trust them in that role? What, what level of access are you giving each of that, each person in that system or each actor in that system uh, to your data? Now, a zero trust system would say, we're not gonna trust any one of those parties at all. But in practice, that, that, a, that doesn't work. You have to trust your employees at some point. You have to, you have to trust your cloud provider to an extent but you can trust them less, I think, with technologies like Safestash. You don't need to to give them the keys to the kingdom. Um, but at some point in in the chain, somebody is going to have to be trusted somewhere, uh, even if it's right up to the CEO right so um, th- the idea of a zero trust system is a is a useful exercise, but I would encourage every organization to think about who are the, who are the, the the actors in their overall Let's call it the the data management system. Uh, what access do they have? How much do we trust them? And are those things in in sync? Do they do we you know do they have are we trusting them more than perhaps we should or is that about right? And I'd encourage every organization to kind of go through this exercise of of thinking about who has access to the data and how much do we
0: trust. Okay, well, awesome. I I really appreciate the the time that you've spent on on data protection gumbo and we we have time for for one more question and I, I haven't asked this question in a while and this it's like the gumbo toss up question so it's not a technical question it's not a a question that that you you might be able to just answer without thinking about it right <laughs> it's uh here we go so it's so what so what's the most difficult decision that that you've had to make to fulfill your destiny as you know where you sit right now
1: that's a very interesting question um I think for me it was it was actually a very personal uh personal question that I had to ask had to ask myself or decision I had to make for myself i i had a a comfortable job as a you know an executive in a in a company as a as a technology leader I wanted to have an impact i i i believe um, deeply in in what I'm doing now, and, and uh, I, I see data security problems as being one of the, the fundamental challenges for the technology, technology industry generally, and even you could even argue for humanity. Uh, and I didn't feel like I was going to have a, 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 as meaningful an impact on those problems as I wanted in my previous role. So for me, the decision was to quit my job and go out and do a startup, take a massive pay cut, take a big risk. Uh, work on a technology that i'm really passionate about um but but uh at the same time kind of taking that leap of faith so for me that was that was the big decision that's a very personal decision
0: okay great i i I appreciate that answer and and I, i i did have several ideas around starting maybe a founders of startup companies type podcast where where you talk about some of the the pitfalls some of the the challenges, some of the, the heartbreak, some of the stories of things that you had to give up, that you've lost. Um, I hear tons of stories about, you know, founders and, and CEOs and co-founders and they, they have to go through a lot. So I, I definitely take my hat off to you, Dan, and um, and, and what, what you have started to build at, at Cypher Stash And I continue to wish you uh, much success and you've picked the right industry. So I think you, you, you're only headed up to the moon, as Elon Musk <laughs> says, right? <laughs> on Saturday Night Live. Indeed. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for appearing on Data Protection Gumbo. And you enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.